Jersey Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports with different executives, entrepreneurs, investors, athletes, students, all different kinds of people. And I do that every week with my trusty partner, Joe Favorito. Hey, Joe, what's going on? Tom, everything's great as we hit the last month of the year of 2017. Amazingly, it's where did it where did it go, Joe? It's 11 months in. We're now in, we're hearing Christmas songs on the radio. We're seeing the Christmas commercials. It, it's always weird how fast it sneaks up, and it also means the end of the semester for you and me, which we'll talk about a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, and also the inevitable year-end best of for 2017. Um, so as a way to kick off this podcast, it's going to be an interesting conversation about investing in sports, and I'll introduce our guest in a second. I know you were at the uh, SBJ Dealmakers Conference this week, so why don't you give us your perspective on that? I'm sure there was a lot of year-end um, discussion and also uh, look towards 2018. What did you hear? It was, um, you know, they had a lot of heavy hitters, um, you know, Michael Rubin, Don Garber, Robert Kraft, Jonathan Kraft. Um, so, you know, there, there was a lot of obviously very high-level discussion, not a lot of news being broken. And ironically, as, as you know, Tom, when we go to these things, sometimes the best stories are the ones for people that you're not necessarily looking at. And by mm-hmm. far, the person who impressed me the most was Ginny Gilder, who is the co-owner of the Seattle Storm. Um, and you talk about someone, she and Mike French, who is um, – the owner of the New England Wolves of the uh, National Lacrosse League, were the two on, two on the last panel along with Chuck Greenberg. And they really had a lot to say about, you know, kind of a disruptive business model and how they're growing in spite of being around, you know, the, the biggest and the best all the time. Uh, but I, I came away infinitely impressed with Ginny Gilder and what she's trying to do with the Seattle Storm. The most interesting thing that I thought she said, and, you know, when you're dealing with teams and leagues that are not of the big four, Usually they talk about, oh, it's the fan experience and, you know, we're about giving back to the community. And she did touch Mm -hmm. on those things. But I thought it was amazing. She actually stood up and said, look, if we don't win, we don't draw. And I've never heard a WNBA owner ever say that before. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, she's one I would definitely follow, Ginny Gilder with the Seattle Storm. How do you spell the last name, Joe? G-I-L-D-E-R. She's actually on Twitter. She is G-I-N-N-Y-G-I-L-D-E-R. So she's okay, a Yale well, grad, actually, actually a good... as a matter of fact. A Yale grad and an Olympian as well. Nice. So, um, so. And, and she was a basketball player? No, she was actually a rower, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. So. Interesting. Um, so, Joe, was, so was the subject of um, investing and the increasing level of activity we're seeing at the team and owner level, in the world of sports tech investing and sports media tech tech investing, did that come up at all? It did in a lot of different ways. Um, There were a couple of uh, people on the venture side there as well who talked about, you know, the high valuations of teams and whether they're going to, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a return. Um, You know, you had somebody like Wink Grossbeck out there talking about some of the other investments and the funds that they've created to invest in things that aren't about just the Boston Celtics. They're about esports and about, you know, other properties that they would like to involve, be involved with that go around the fan experience. You know, it was interesting, Michael Rubin talking about Fanatics, uh, which is a, obviously a billion-dollar company, and he, he is also, you know, a part owner of the 76ers uh, and some of the other things that, you know, Josh Harris is involved with. 
Uh, and he had a great point. He said, you know, everyone talks about us, you know, and the price points of what people are getting and the immediacy of being able to get uh, swag of whatever team it is. He goes, we are all about the fan experience. And frankly, the teams have come back to us and they said, look, we don't care about the margins as much on what we're making. We want to make sure that our fans are being serviced properly for what they want and when they get it. And I think that on-demand economy, you know, we're going to start hearing more and more about whether it's esports, whether it's, you know, getting food, whether you're sitting at, standing at a concession stand or sitting down, whether it's, you know, where you're going to park and how you're going to sit, you know, because it seems more and more, especially now you look at MLS moving a franchise now, and Don Garber talked about, you know, the expansion that is going to happen now and with LA Football Club coming in, it's becoming more and more obviously about the fan experience and where you're going to get ancillary revenue from as opposed to let's just keep soaking these people for more and more money and hoping they keep coming back. Well, Chijo, that sounds familiar. Sounds suspiciously like a little company out in Seattle, doesn't it? It certainly uh, does. Well, it should be, not worrying, not, wor- not worrying about margins, but rather putting an emphasis on customer service and efficiency and great interfaces. Sounds like Mr. Bezos' company to me. And uh, it's interesting to see that they're emulating those kinds of approaches, which were lost by a lot of people in the retail business, a lot of companies in the retail business over the last couple of decades. But Amazon has proven that that's the winning formula. So I guess fanatics can copy that and be the Amazon of sports. That's actually what they, and it's funny, he actually at one point kind of subtly said, well, you know, we think because of our authenticity, a lot of the things we do are better than Amazon, which was kind of interesting to hear um, Michael Rubin say that. So. I was going to say, you don't hear too many people saying that right now, circa 2017 and in, in this mm-hmm. world, but that's okay. Anyway, the reason I asked that question is it's a good segue into our topic today, which is about investing in sports. And we're really pleased to have uh, a wonderful guest, Jay Kapoor, who's actually an, um, working with on the side of this business in what often is called corporate venture capital. So he's a VC at Madison Square Garden, a company you and I know well. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he's got some great experience in the business, having worked on the investment banking side of the business as well as the property side. He worked in corporate strategy at the National Football League. So uh, it's a really great perspective. And I had the privilege of having Jay visit my digital class the other night, coincidentally. And it was one of the best classes we've had all semester, uh, partly because of Jay and partly because of his, his colleague who joined as well. Uh, Bryant McBride, our old friend who uh, who we mm-hmm. know well, and many of our listeners know well, and it was it was a powerful one-two punch of investing perspectives from Bryant, who's as we all know is a successful entrepreneur and uh, individual investor, and, and also a former uh, league guy, uh, and Jay with his perspective that is multifaceted. So Jay, welcome to the show. Really pleased to have you. Uh, thank you so much for having me, guys. It's a real pleasure. Yes. So uh, there's a lot to talk about. This is one of my favorite topics in the business because partly because it's so dynamic and something we discussed the other night, Jay, that maybe you can offer your perspective on is how the nature of investing and the the types of investor class has really expanded over the last decade to include specific corporate players such as MSG, individual athletes, uh, actual individual owners, sometimes owner groups, uh, technology companies, of course, that are looking to acquire smaller companies, uh, venture capital companies all over the country, all over the world now, and, of course, private equity. 
So it's, it's kind of a crazy marketplace, and it's really fascinating because there's so much going on with the disruption in sports media and tech. There's a lot of deal flow. There's a lot of activities happening. So why don't we start off with just we'll, – we'll cover your background in a few minutes, but start with a general perspective on where things are right now in investing as it relates to sports. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Look, I think uh, contrary to what many entrepreneurs might feel, um, there is a ton of venture capital that's out there right now from a host of the sources that you just mentioned. I think, um, you know, starting with there's a tremendous amount of interest from uh, financial VCs who see sports as an exciting way to uh, grow their business, uh, you know, in, in investing in companies that can expand into the sports vertical or use the sports vertical as a, as a launching pad into other areas like consumer retail and, you know, B2B industries. Uh, then I think beyond that, as you mentioned, right, there are a host of uh, team owners and league properties that are getting involved in the sports investing space. Um, I think from, uh, there's a good reason for that. I mean, there is a ton of uh, barriers and, um, you know, gatekeepers in the uh, sports industry generally. So as startups try to sell into, whether it's teams, uh, ownership groups, uh, it's a great, uh, you know, asset that these team owners can bring in, uh, you know, helping shepherd these investments through that ecosystem. Uh, and then more and more, I think you're starting to see uh, athletes get very actively involved in sports investing. And I'm, I'm happy to sort of dig into my thoughts broadly in that. But I think, you know, one of the biggest reasons is uh, a lot of the athletes now that are either retiring or uh, sort of at their prime uh, have grown up with technology. They are digital natives themselves. And now that they have capital to spend, um, they're going to spend it on things that they understand. So consumer apps and social apps and, uh, you know, on-demand platforms, and you're seeing a ton of athletes get involved in there. So there's a, there's a ton of capital out there. Um, I do think it's an interesting environment right now, uh, especially in the sports space, given you, know, you talked at the top of the um, intro about uh, Amazon, uh, given that there are a lot of incumbent technology players that are also spending a lot of time thinking about uh, how they get involved with it, with the, you know, in the leagues, uh, with the teams, and sort of across the broader spectrum. And then that's uh, part of where we come in, right? We are, um, as a venue owner, you know, multiple venues across the U.S., uh, we own multiple teams, uh, including the Knicks and the Rangers. Uh, we recently acquired CounterLogic Gaming, the esports team. Uh, you know, we start thinking about, um, given that we have access to these properties, given that we have access to this, these venues, uh, and we want to provide the best level of experience to the fans that are coming to uh, the Garden or coming to the L.A. Forum uh, for one of our concerts, uh, how do we leverage technology to do that? Uh, and that's part of where my role comes in, is really having a good sense of what are the technologies out there uh, and where do we implement them across our platform? Uh, and then when there's an opportunity to invest, um, you know, how much money do we put to work uh, to really make these uh, technologies as great as they can be? So, so Jay, I have two questions off of that. Uh, one yeah. is... Um, ROI, which everybody, especially on the investment side, is always looking for ROI. Yep. And how how yep. is something determined, especially in a world of esports where there's there's no roadmap at all? And then yep. the second thing, you go back to the athletes. And, and um, a guy who, when I was with the Knicks, came into the league, and a, a, someone who I respect and like as a person tremendously in David Lee, just said mm -hmm. this week that he's now going to get involved in the investment space. Well, yeah. I look at those things and I kind of chuckle because – you know, I, I know how to drive a car, but I sure as hell can't build one. 
So, so yeah. why would an athlete <laughs> sure. with no background at all suddenly say, I'm going to go invest in things that really yep. I, I kind of like, but I don't really know how, you know, what, what, what would be the impetus for someone thinking that they're suddenly going to be a successful entrepreneur after spending, you know, 12 years, around, 12 years most of their time focused on their craft, which was playing a professional sport. So what's the yeah. ROI and why, why in God's name sometimes would athletes think that this would be a good thing? Is it the new restaurant where, you know, yeah, people yeah. fail for let years? Me, so go ahead. Let me, let me touch on the ROI first. I think uh, that's sort of uh, the easier question. Uh, the athlete question, I think we're still sort of seeing that play out. Uh, on the ROI piece, look, I think that answer differs – um, from, you know, investor to investor and from, you know, ownership group to ownership group. And so for us, as we look at investment, first and foremost, for us, is a strategic fit. Uh, and so when somebody comes into us, uh, you know, for an investment, and this is a tremendous company, we think they're going to do really well. They're probably a vertical software player, uh, and they have, you know, tons of applications all across all these different fields, but entertainment is less than 20% of their business. Well, that might be somebody that we have a vendor or a, or a partnership relationship with, uh, but doesn't necessarily make sense from us from an investment standpoint. So, um, you know, we are going to prioritize a strategic alignment with our capital uh, more than we are, um, you know, a, a 10 to 20x return on a company that we're not necessarily involved in. So at the end of the day, we are a public company and we want to make sure that, we're, you know, we're investing capital in the right way. Uh, I think that differs as you go to financial VCs who are obviously looking to return you know, well above market returns to their LPs, to the limited partners. Uh, we don't have limited partners, right? We have a, an investment committee that invests off our balance sheet. And so uh, that's really how we think about ROI. So the, the sectors that I spend time focusing on, you know, I have to be very careful when I get excited about a company to really make sure that there's somebody that's going to spend time in our space. Um, that, that equation, by the way, is also changing how uh, people look at sports companies. So what I'm starting to see more and more is that there are a – ton of great companies that are in that seed and series a range and they're all really looking for you know one pilot give me one shot let, let me try in one venue and i'm going to be able to scale that to all these different places um there are obviously you know the, the sort of rarefied air of companies that um you're going to see across a, a ton of different venues or you know in, in a company like venue next case you're now starting to see them scaled to different sports and different arenas and, and, and really be known as a name, uh, you know, in, in that one specific subset of what they do. Um, but, it, but it's very tough to break through. It's very tough to sort of break through from the noise unless you have that one or two, you know, venues or, you know, pilot programs that you're really working with. And so I, I, part of the, I think the ROI that funds are looking for is when they come and say, hey, I'm team or ownership group connected. I can bring that value to this company. And that might be worth, you know, more equity to me uh, as I make my investment in this company. I think th that sort of pricing conversation is happening in a lot of rooms as people start to think about the value add that they bring as not just investors, but partners into the company. So that's sort of, I think, the ROI conversation. You know, you talk about esports and happy to dig it into it further. I think that space is, you know, a little bit more um, still at the, the seed level to sort of use VC parlance, right? I think it's uh, a lot more about the size of the opportunity, broadly speaking. Uh, I think everyone sees that the audience for esports is tremendously exciting when you look at the average age groups of the big four sports, and, you know, they're in the 50s, uh, and then you start looking at the average sort of viewership uh, subset of esports, and you say, uh, oh, wow, that's, you know, in the high 20s, low 30s uh, at most. Um, that's pretty exciting. And I think that 
in a broad sense is what folks like us and, and, you know, I think folks investing in esports across the space are really banking on, which is that this is going to be a young, excited audience that's going to stick around for a long time. And so the ROI from a strategic perspective um, is massive. Uh, and then the financial perspective, you know, obviously we're all going to be following it very closely. Um, to your point on athletes, uh, that's something that, that I've been thinking about uncovering for uh, a long time. Uh, you know, about a year and change ago, um, you, know, you mentioned restaurants. I, I basically likened it exactly to steakhouses. If you looked in the 90s and you saw the whole host of guys that thought they could sort of wrap their arms around the restaurant business because they had eaten at restaurants before, uh, it's not that simple. Right. And I, and I think, uh, you know, knowing how to run a business and uh, knowing what a good steak tastes like is very similar to seeing everybody out here and thinking that you can wrap your head around uh, the challenges the startup faces or the role that you have to play as an investor. Um, and then saying, well, I got, you know, 50 million burning a hole in my pocket because I had a good long career in this league. Uh, and now I can go be an investor. Uh, I think look, there, there's psychological sort of conversations you can have, right. Whether there's a, a hubris that plays into it, or there's sort of these guys are at the, the top of the top of their game right now. And so why wouldn't they be able to go be the, the top of another game? I think the broader question is, you know, do these athletes understand uh, the level of engagement involvement that good investors should have with the investments they make, right? There's, there's obviously this push and pull um, you know, as investors try to put together a basket, uh, you know, portfolio for the investments they're making is I want to make as many good investments as I can. But one of the ways that they're going to become good is that I'm going to spend time with them, help them work through their problems, be there as an active investor, whether I'm a board member or not, be there as an active investor to make sure that this company succeeds at every step of the way. There's only so many hours in the day to do that. And then when you're an athlete, you know, a lot of times you will write a check and you're going to be a passive check in this company. Um, that's a really good way to lose your money. And so to me, it's, uh, I would love to see athletes get more involved with startups, but not necessarily as investors. I think um, there's a lot of athletes, especially the ones that have great media training that would make tremendous salespeople, tremendous B2B salespeople. So if there are startups that are looking to get involved with athletes and their athletes are involved in technology, um, getting them involved in that process, helping them work within a company to really understand, hey, what are the operational challenges you face? Um, what are the issues you're going to face when, you know, maybe you've raised 20 million and you're trying to scale a team and you have to figure out who the right people to hire are and how much you pay them. I mean, those are things that um, you only get if you work very closely with startups or work at a startup. Um, and I, I think it is a little bit uh, hard to, to see so many athletes going into it that don't have a ton of experience in this space. So Jay, one of the most interesting parts of the conversation in the class with Bryant was about the, the mindset of the corporate investing that is now happening because as we've all seen in the marketplace, the uh, early stage investors, the VCs typically are known to be very uh, comfortable with risk and uncertainty in the yeah. market. That's just the yeah. nature, nature of the game which is really counterintuitive to corporate management with fiduciary responsibility, particularly for public companies, et cetera. So how is that being addressed generally in the marketplace based on what you saw kind of attitudinally at the NFL and what you're dealing with as, on a practical level at MSG? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it goes across the spectrum, right? I think there are 
Uh, let's look at, you know, corporate investing broadly. I think there are investment groups that are loosely tied to corporations, but effectively act like financial funds. I think Comcast Ventures is a good example. They, they do a ton of investing across the space. Um, you know, Google Ventures is, I think, Google in name only, right? And so, and then there's sort of all the way at the back end with mm-hmm. the NFL that had an investing entity, um, but was very, very strategic with uh, the kind of things that they looked at, you know, at least when I was there. Uh, so I think corporate investing sort of runs the gamut. Um, why I think people are spending more time in this space, and uh, I think that's actually a good thing that there are more corporate investors spending time in this space. Um, in a word, I think it's disruption. I think there are a ton of corporations that are seeing um, the fact that, you know, being a laggard in an industry because of technology, those trends come at you even faster every year, right? The, the, the ability for users to discover a new product um, is getting faster and faster and maybe getting more and more expensive as you think about cost to acquire a customer, but the ability for people to discover a new product, a new alternative to an existing corporate entity uh, is happening very rapidly. And it's happening in our business. It's happening in a live entertainment business. So, um, if, you know, if you think about the thesis of us as an investor, you know, group or, or just live entertainment as an investor group, you know, we're thinking about how do you put butts in seats? What is it that is going to get people excited about coming to the arena or going to the forum or the Chicago theater or Radio City Music Hall and get them excited to go there, uh, excited to stay, uh, talk about it, share it, convince other people to come, and really be a big part of, I think, what makes this company really great, which is the community of uh, people that, that come to our events. And so when we think about what are we going to invest in, and, and when I think about what you know, kind of companies that I want to look at, it's who is um, dictating and spending uh, you know, sort of resources and technology to create the future of live entertainment. I mean, that at the end of the day is what are the technologies that are going to uh, really help propel that experience forward and drive people to literally drive out of their house and come to one of our venues and enjoy one of the experiences that we have and, um, you know, feel that the price that they're paying for it is really worth it. I think that is the biggest challenge. So, um, I think generally it is a good thing. I think corporations getting involved in investing and in venture investing is a good thing. Uh, but the risk appetite, as you mentioned, I think is the hardest part, right? I think um, because we don't have LPs that we're trying to return a three or four X return to, we don't necessarily have to be uh, very aggressive on every deal that we see. We can take some time uh, to sort of evaluate it and, and run some pilots and see how things turn out. Um, whereas a seed investor one doesn't necessarily have the resources to do that. And two, they're just, they're drinking from the fire hose. They're seeing all of these investments come through and they have to, to pick the right ones that, you know, are going to be part of a, a, a basket of 40 investments they make in that fund, really hoping that one of those ends up being the one that, you know, returns their capital and their investors capital with many, many above market returns. Um, that's not necessarily important for us. Um, but that does mean that, um, as startups engage with corporate investors, they have to understand that the dynamics of how they raise capital from a financial VC versus a corporate VC are going to be different. Right, but it, it sounds as though one thing you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I, and I understand this mentality because I've worked in large companies as well and know the attitudes, is that first and foremost, a new investment needs to support, in effect, the legacy business that if it were mm-hmm. at odds with the fundamentals 
of the mission of the legacy business, it may not be as attractive. And that there's now a lot of roadkill in the marketplace of corporate investments all over media, for example, companies that thought yep. that, that they could kind of play in this, in this space and they realize it's at odds with their core businesses and they, they've, they've either closed down these businesses or written things off. I mean, there's a ton of examples you've lived through some of them uh, in some of your experiences as I have. Um, yep. So how do you, Am, am I right about that, that it's got to support the legacy business, and that if it's something – you talk about the future of live entertainment. So, for example, yeah. with MSG, would you guys be open to a new VR technology that could mimic uh, a, a great experience at one of your venues, but it's not, it's not in the venue? It's at home, perhaps, or something like that? Well, as a, as a matter of fact, we've actually made um, multiple investments in VR. So we were invested in both Jaunt and Next VR. Um, and that for us, I think, is a great way to understand, you know, what is the engagement that the fan has with these 360 video and VR experiences uh, in the home? Because, yeah, look, you, not everybody is going to come to every Knicks home game. I and mean, there's a ton of games, right? Not everybody is going to come to every concert that happens at one of our venues. But what we want to continue to have is touch points across the ecosystem uh, with our fans and, and with the the folks that um, do enjoy making live entertainment a part of their, you know, monthly spend. So they are going to a concert or a game or a show at some point during the month. And that's a big part of, you know, their identity. And so when we think about how do we make MSG as a brand, a part of people's identity? Yeah, absolutely. Reaching them in home is a big part of it. And I think that was part of the thesis. Uh, you know, these investments were done before I came on board, but that's part of the thesis behind those investments is how do we make sure we understand what engagement in a new technology like VR looks like uh, for folks at home. Uh, so, you know, to, I think in, in a nutshell to answer your, your question, uh, you know, we don't want to invest in something that's going to actively, you know, erode our own uh, market share or dominance in the space. You know, that doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, but I think, by having a, a thesis around venture investing or at least being um, active in the marketplace looking at new technologies, um, we get to, to maybe be a little bit, you know, diagonal and invest in things mm -hmm. that um, don't necessarily, you know, make sense um, to the layman. But then as you think about how we operate our businesses or um, where we can sort of find efficiencies and how we reach our fans or, or whatever it is, uh, they actually allow us to, um, expand our reach. And I think that, that's sort of the, the biggest function here is that, um, you know, in, in the past, and I, and I try to think of myself as a, as a student of sort of history in that aspect, in the past, there wasn't a lot of venture investing done. It was primarily M&A. You would just, you would go buy a company and then six months later, you realize like, shoot, I bought, the wrong, I bought the wrong thing. And, you know, at least with venture investing, we don't look at our investments as, you know, all of them uh, are a path to M&A. Um, but we do look at them as an aspect to learn more about uh, a new technology or a new trend that's happening. Um, that's a great way for us to get involved in te the technology sphere generally. Jake, can you touch a little bit on how the structure at, a, at a, um, a property like Madison Square Garden works? And what I mean with that is, you know, somewhere in the circular building sitting on top of Penn Station, there are sales guys selling yeah. stuff that directly impact the bottom line that uh, that the company is going to look for, tickets, television advertising, digital. And then you were kind of sitting out there 
looking now? Is it a direct back and forth where, or are there times where, you know, not just at the garden, but I'm sure at other places where, you know, th- those yeah. people who have, have um, margins that they have to hit and, you know, get bonuses for their sales, look at this as like, holy crap, that guy is going to go and invest in something that's going to take away from an advertiser that we have. How does that dynamic work? Does it work? Yeah. No, and then, you know, and then the last piece of that is, are there specific things that, you know, is it a totally open book or are there things that never in a million years because of that dynamic that you would ever look at investing in? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. And so at the starters, I think, you know, we are a, a big company, but weirdly, I think we, we have really great communication across uh, all of the, the different segments. And I think part of that is, you know, I focus um, a lot of my efforts on, on venture investing. I work a little bit on some of our internal corporate development projects. Um, I sit right next to our corporate development team. And so whether it's M&A, venture, or internal corp dev uh, projects, we all, you know, we're all one team. We all work together on them. Um, and the, help, the helpful thing is that you know, we have, you know, like, a, like a spider web, we have sort of nexus points to all those teams you mentioned, whether it's sponsorship or sales or ticketing. So whenever we see a new opportunity, and I think I mentioned this in, in Tom's class, um, you know, somebody comes in and says, oh, we have this new blockchain technology for ticketing. Okay, great. Like, we, we want to learn about it. We want to understand it. And if it is truly as revolutionary as you say it is, then we might engage with it as an investment uh, and so on. Um, well, the, the biggest thing you have to, to remember is that we work with Ticketmaster, as, as do many uh, venues and, and operators, right? So we don't want to step on the toes of a, a very, very important partner like Ticketmaster and Live Nation. And so we will loop in the folks from that team to say, hey, sit in with us on this meeting, right? Make sure that the questions that we're asking are the right ones to ask, first and foremost, right? I think that, that's, that's really important because there's no way that I'm going to know as much as somebody who's been in the ticketing space for 10 years. So be with us to have those conversations. And then secondly, you know, after we, we come out of that conversation and we debrief, let us know where there are avenues for us to, to work with this new company, to partner with them, uh, or if uh, it's completely going to mess with our relationship, let us know that as well, and we'll sort of approach the, the, the concept and the topic accordingly. Uh, and sometimes what that means is, you know, we'll see a really great company, and we'll say, you know, I think we do want to be involved. We know that this might be a little bit of a conflict with a partner or a sponsor. Well, then we go talk to that team and say, hey, let's, let's have a call with your counterpart at that partner or sponsor and make sure that everything is, is copacetic. So, uh, the short answer is the way you solve that problem is a ton of good communication. I think as a company, we, uh, or at least in my time here in the last year, I think we've done a really good job of making sure that if um, I'm looking at an investment that um, may be a conflict, we raise that and communicate that very quickly with the team that it might be a conflict for. Jay, what specific categories in tech or media or proximity, uh, wearables, whatever, you know, category that's mm-hmm. uh, kind of on your radar, do you think is going to be hottest in 2018? Yeah. Um, so at the risk of sounding cliche, I think uh, augmented reality is, is probably going to be the, the big trend that we see in 2018. Not that it wasn't in, in 2017. I think in 2017 we were still seeing the remnants of VR investing and people getting really excited about, you know, the next latest headset upgrade. I think um, one of the things that people are realizing, especially around VR and live entertainment, is that it, it can be 
uh, a very much of a solo experience. And live entertainment by its very nature is a very social experience. And so specifically for us, um, I think the, the investments that we have done um, are, are you know, working really well to try to solve that problem. How do you have that social experience while still having uh, you know, a really great visual experience? I think uh, AR, on the other hand, um, you know, is not just going to be mobile. I think for us in the venue, there are some really cool opportunities that we can have to create a better experience for our fans by giving them better wayfinding or, you know, giving them uh, prices on something that they're trying to buy specifically, uh, you know, as we know that they have, um, let's say, you know, somebody has an allergy or is gluten or whatever it is. If we understand that about our customer, we can use augmented reality to uh, give them prices or a menu or whatever it is that is uh, tailored to them. I think um, that's where you start to pair, you know, really great customer relationship management with uh, a new and exciting technology, right, that gets people to not just be on their phones you know, snapping pictures and, and, you know, playing games or whatever it is, but actually engaging with our venue in a really interesting way. Um, for your listeners who, who haven't been to MSG, if you go into the garden and you walk around, um, you know, the main concourse, the 100-level concourse, along the top there is a mural – uh, that is called the Garden 366, which is 366 days in the history of Madison Square Garden. And it has, you know, pictures from really great events across history. Well, to me, that's a great example of somebody who can say, oh, wow, that, that day I see my birthday. I'm going to put up my phone. And now through AR, I can mm -hmm. relive a video or I can see a, a, a rotating, you know, that multiple things might have happened on that same day across the years. Those are really great examples of where you turn you know, a, a physical concrete building into something that is living. And so to me, that's really exciting and where I'm starting to spend a lot of my time understanding not just the kind of experiences that people are creating, but also the underlying technologies behind it, um, you know, whether it's content delivery or infrastructure that are going to make, um, you know, those kind of experiences possible. I think that end-to-end -end is really, really important for us to understand because, look, stadium Wi-Fi is a challenge that everybody is trying to solve, right? So we want to make sure that we are working with the partners that understand how to leverage our resources and, and, and our limitations, frankly, um, to still be able to provide the best uh, experience to our fans. Jade, can you touch on, um, uh, you talked about the garden and a lot of the, you know, the ancillary things. How are the teams involved in these decisions? Are they involved? And is it dissimilar or similar to what, Wink Grosbeck is doing with, um, you know, their investment group in Boston or Joe yep. Lacob is doing with their group in Golden State. Are there similarities to you guys trade, like like, like happens with Teambo in the NBA? Uh, and then how, how yeah. involved are the teams? So, you know, we work with the, the head of uh, the team's group and, and Jordan Solomon and sort of know him really well. And so, you know, one example is uh, CounterLogic Gaming is now our esports team. So if we're trying to do something with them or – uh, on the same side, if we're trying to do something with the Knicks or the Rangers, we're going to get Jordan and his team involved um, to really make sure, one, that we're asking the right questions and two, uh, you know, trying to not bite off more than we can chew, especially in the middle of a season. So, you know, they'll get involved um, insofar as uh, they have needs that, that they want to solve, whether it's on the court, off the court, um, you know, in the offseason, whatever it is, if they have needs that they want to solve – they'll typically communicate that and then, you know, we'll keep that top of mind if we go out and meet a company or, uh, or, or meet a partner that can actually help service that. Um, you know, I can't 100% speak to uh, what the folks in Boston or, or with the Warriors are doing. Um, you know, we know uh, the investors there pretty well. I know the, 
the folks, for example, at the, the 49ers investment group pretty well. So uh, a lot of times, as, as I'm sure uh, any of your listeners who have uh, you know, studied the VC space will, will know, um, a lot of this is relationship-based. So we will see deals that, that they'll see and you know, they'll reach out and say, hey, either we're invested or you know, we're not going to invest right now because it's too early or we're not going to invest right now because we think the valuation doesn't make sense, whatever it is. But um, really like the company, really like the founding team, would love to make an intro. And so a lot of stuff that I see will come in from relationships just like that. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily share secrets on, on how we invest or, you know, share our models or, or what have you. So, Jay, we're going to move into the last uh, couple of questions of the uh, discussion. And um, yeah. I'll give you fair warning on this, so hopefully you'll be ready. Uh, I'll ask the yeah. joke in a second. So you know that we like to ask our guests how they keep up. And as I was listening to you talk, and I've known you for a while, and I know others that are working in that space, I know that if there's any part of the business where you really have to stay on top of things in terms of new developments, technologies, uh, et cetera, it's your area and that the area yeah. of investing. So how do you do it? How do you, what are you paying attention to? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I uh, you know, try to keep a, a steady and healthy media diet. I think what's been helpful is that, um, you know, there are now a lot of newsletters. Uh, so I think top of my inbox every morning, there's about three to five newsletters from, you know, folks like Next Level Sports in the esports space or Sport Techie, uh, you know, for what's going on in, in sort of, you know, general team and, and sports stuff. Um, you know, SBJ, uh, I'll try to check out pretty regularly. Uh, so, so those are sort of like the, the trade publications I try to stay on top of. I think beyond that, um, you know, I like to understand what's happening in, in tech more generally. Um, you know, one example, like I, I was talking to your team, uh, your, your class earlier this week, um, you know, what we saw happening in sports media a little while ago with the acquisition of SB Nation and a bunch of different sports properties by uh, larger media companies, we're now starting to see that happen in the broader media space. It just happened to happen a little bit faster in sports. And so it's always interesting to see how sports as an ecosystem is a microcosm in many ways for what's going to happen uh, in the larger, uh, you know, media ecosystem, if you will, media technology ecosystem. Uh, and on the same side, because in a lot of ways, especially in live entertainment, you know, sports and live entertainment can be behind the curve on investing. I like to understand, you know, what are really great new technologies that are happening in commerce or retail um, that we won't necessarily invest in today, but it's good for me to keep top of mind. So like voice technology is, is, is one that, you know, I am really excited about. There's probably nothing for us to do there right now, but I think it's going to be a, a very interesting interface um, in the home, in commerce, in retail, and then eventually might even make it over into your seats. So instead of having to get up and, you know, order fries and a beer at the, at the game, uh, you're going to be able to just speak it into your seat and, and it will arrive by drone or whatever it is. Right. So those are kind of things like I, I like to, to see what's five years ahead, even if we're not going to invest in it today. Right. Okay, and, and it's funny. I saw. Good. Time. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, no, you, you, you first. Uh, it's funny. Um, one of the conversations that happened at the sports media technology conference was about the, the need to keep people in their seats and away from concession stands. And that's, uh, I guess, kind of mm -hmm. what you were alluding to there. So, yeah, the, uh, we, we have, you know, we have sponsors that are, that are paying for, you know, the attention, right. The undivided attention of those fans. And so if, if they're getting up and they're on the concourse, then maybe they're not necessarily, uh, you know, being, being present. So uh, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's sort of, that's not the perspective through which I look at it. Right. I think being able to order food to your seat is, is cool anyway. 
Um, but yeah, there are sort of far-reaching implications for why you why, might want people in your seat. Mm-hmm. But Joe, I do have to say, since I, well, I mentioned I visited the Garden a couple weeks ago for a Knicks game, and I was the guest of a friend on a corporate uh, in a corporate suite, one of the lower-level suites. And mm-hmm. you know, you and I, Joe, you and I have talked about this point a lot. But it, it's almost like we're we're making this a lot harder for the venue operators because the suites are so fantastic. We walk in on a cold night. There's a gas fire place. There's an amazing spread of food. There's an open bar, comfortable seats, a nice uh, big table. And, you know, you're kind of in there thinking, this is, this is pretty good. You have everything you need. And then what I noticed with the people that were the attendees in the suite was that they would go in and out of the, from the suite into the seats, meaning that the seats were at various at different times. Uh, not filled, and and that, as we know, is a huge problem in Yankee Stadium and in City Field, with those uh, preferred seats with all the amenities mm-hmm. in the in the front. Um, so anyway, the feedback as it may, I'm not sure if we want to discuss it. I just want to make that observation: is that as much as you want to try to uh, build these opportunities for greater engagement within the arena itself, there's that temptation on the corporate suite sales side to keep raising the bar of the experience there. So anyway, for what that's yeah. worth. So, um, Joe, do you want to get into the, uh, the last one? Yep. So Jay, uh, we had, uh, and this shouldn't be a surprise to you either. Obviously a lot of people listening to this are students, people looking for jobs, people new to the industry. So what advice do you give, uh, kind of the great unwashed to walk through your door and say, <laughs> you're Jay Kapoor. Can you help? Can I want to be the next Jay Kapoor? How do I get there? Yeah, wow. Well, uh, don't don't do it the way I did it. I think that was a lot harder than it needed to be. So that's probably my uh, my, my first advice. No, I think uh, you know a lot a lot of folks that have reached out, uh, you know, have have asked me uh, if they want to get into sports venture capital or venture capital generally. Um, you know, what what should they be doing now if they want to go do that after they graduate or after a couple of years and whatever they're doing? Um, my first piece of advice to to everybody, and and, and this I think maybe even broadly applies in the space. Um, if you want to be, you know, in investing, especially in venture investing, become a good writer, like become a great writer, because at the end of the day, what you're trying to do uh, is take information that you have gained from a company you're meeting with, from diligence calls that you have done, you know, uh, you know, all the research that you're doing, and then distill that into a perfectly packaged memo, PowerPoint presentation, whatever it is, and present that to somebody that may never have met that company. And you have to be very, very good and very, very persuasive at being able to have that conversation. So spend time on your writing, you know, go get a blog, pick a topic, write once a month and put it out there and just get comfortable putting it out there and having people, um, you know, tear it apart. Because at the end of the day, having bad ideas in your head and and having nobody challenge them uh, versus putting bad ideas out in paper and having people tell you why they're a bad idea, you're going to learn the second way way more than you're going to learn the first way. And so that's sort of my first advice is that, you know, just be, be ready to have that. And I guess a corollary to that is like, get used to being wrong, right? Uh, especially in this business, you know, it is, uh, especially in, you know, especially in venture capital specifically, most of the companies that people invest in don't do well. It's like 60% are not going to end up returning their initial investment. And so get used to being wrong, right? You might think, uh, that, that the world is a certain way, or you might think that investment is a certain way, get used to being wrong and get used to being, you know, saying, I don't know, but let's figure it out. Let's, let's go learn that thing. So that's just, I think, basic uh, uh, things that people 
um, you know, maybe don't think about enough until they get into the working world. And I had to sort of learn the hard way is, you know, get used to being wrong, get used to saying, I don't know. And then I try to spend as much time as I can um, picking a topic, um, putting a stake in the ground and, and then, you know, writing about it and saying, here's how I think the world ought to be, or here's a company that I think is really doing a great thing um, to, to change the world in this interesting way. Uh, and then look beyond that is surround yourself with people that are going to challenge you. Uh, I think that's the, that's the most important thing. So whether it's, you know, in, in your classes or, um, you know, the friends that you're working with or whatever it is, uh, you know, from a career standpoint, is, is be with people that, um, you know, not only have different perspectives from you, like, so you don't just come up with groupthink. I think that's the most dangerous thing. Um, but constantly have opinions and, and put them out there uh, and have conversations with people that are going to come back and um, force you to defend those opinions. And, and I think that's um, one of the, the, the best things that, that I've been able to do around the last couple of years, especially in the space, um, is build a really great network of other investors, other individuals that work at teams and leagues, and, uh, you know, be able to call them up and, and say, I'm thinking about something in a certain way, convince me that I'm wrong, or, or maybe I can convince you that, that I'm right, and we can go look at this problem together. Having those persuasive skills, I think, at the end of the day, you know, no matter what field you're in, whatever work you're going to be doing, if you're going to be working for a big company or starting your own company, you're going to have to um, learn how to be persuasive. And so, so learn how to do that now as a writer and learn how to do that now by surrounding yourself with people that are going to force you that way. Uh, so I think those are my two biggest pieces of advice. Wow, that's music to our ears, Jay. Uh, as teachers, Joe and I always emphasize the importance of good communications, and it, in primarily in two forms, which you correctly point out, of course, the writing and the speaking. Because look, for all of our different jobs, for all these different opportunities, whether it's you sitting in front of your decision-making board for a new investment opportunity yep. or for Joe or I sitting in front of a, of a new account we're pitching or whatever, or even frankly standing in front of students, you, you have yeah. to be able to convey the essence of a message, of a point, of an idea, and you have to do it clearly and you have to do it efficiently. And it's uh, something we remark on a lot, Joe and I, that is that there's just a plethora of bad communications all over this business world. Um, I think, I think a lot of the way, no, I think, I think a lot of the way that, um, that, that people can actually get better at that is by what they read. Right. So at the top of your question, you asked, what do I try to read? I try to write people, uh, read people that write the way that I wish I wrote. And I think that mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest things too, is, is surrounding, you know, yourself with those books and those ideas um, that are going to make uh, you be a better communicator. And I think to, to that end, if you don't mind, I'd like to share like, three of the books that, that I recommend to anybody that comes to me, especially in the tech and startup world and says, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, do you have something that, that I can read that would help me think about things in these way? Um, you know, if, if you don't mind, I'd be happy to share them. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. So the, the first one, um, the, and, you know, I, I think is a phenomenal book for understanding uh, how things can go wrong when you're working at a startup and, and maybe some ways that you can either see them coming or, or, or fix them is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I think mm -hmm. he does a really great mm -hmm. job outla outlining, um, you know, he, he calls it wartime CEO, peacetime CEO, and all the different uh, challenges that you might face when you're starting your company or, or trying to scale it. So I think that's a really great one. Um, I think anybody that's spending any time with consumer technology or consumer apps needs to understand Hooked by Nir Eyal. That's a phenomenal book about how he talks mm -hmm. about, you know, getting your 
users to check in instead of just check out and all the different, you know, behavioral psychology aspects that, that allow you to, to build your product in that way. Uh, and then the last one I really enjoyed because we talked about the power of persuasion and how important it is to be able to communicate your point across the right way. Um, Daniel Pink makes a very similar point about sales. And he says that, you know, there are a good number of people, especially folks that work in sports, that work in sales and they're selling assets or tickets or whatever it is. But the other, you know, people are also in sales. And instead of selling an actual good, they're trying to sell ideas. And so he wrote this amazing book that I recommend to everybody called To Sell as Human. And, um, and, but that's by Daniel Pink. And that's a phenomenal book as well. So I think those three books, um, they are a little more abstract. They're not directly business books. Um, but uh, but I, I think they're phenomenal. So trying to surround yourself with, with ideas that are going to make you a, a, a more persuasive person, I think, are also uh, really good things to do. That's awesome. Great. By the way, um, all three books are highly regarded in the, in the business um, marketplace uh, that I've known about, partly because I listened to Tim Ferriss. And uh, yeah. it, felt, it, it felt very Tim Ferriss-y just now because he always, he's, he always asks him about which books that they give to their, to their friends and acquaintances. But I'm a huge yep. fan of To Sell as Human. It's something that I've given to and uh, told people about for the last couple of years. It's, it's really good advice in there. But anyway, we do have to wrap. And before we say the final goodbye, Jay, let, uh, let everybody know where they can find you on Twitter and beyond. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Look, if you're uh, building an interesting company in our space or uh, you generally just want to want to reach out and have questions about how we do things, um, Twitter is definitely the best place to find me. So I'm at NYC. So that's J-A-Y-K-A-P-O-O-R, and then NYC, like New York City. Uh, and that's the best place to reach me. I'm, uh, I'm almost always on there. So I um, appreciate it. Yeah, and, it, and everybody, uh, Jay's a good follow, so, so check him out on Twitter. And then if you need to reach out, you can, do, can direct message him. Um, great, great uh, show, Jay. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. I, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me, Tom and Joe. Appreciate it. Yeah, and Thanks. for me, it was a special week. Uh, two, two doses of J in the course of a few a days. Double J. Great. That? <laughs> yeah, double J. There, uh, which there, was, there you go. I, right I after learned, the holiday, I learned, too. <laughs> yeah, I learned a ton, and uh, I'll return the favor with the lunch uh, soon. Uh, but anyway, thank, uh, thank you again, Jay. And, Joe, thank you for another great show. We will be back next week. Um, we've got a couple of interesting folks lined up. I shouldn't mention any names because we're still finalizing. Uh, we've got to get our booker on this, uh, and I'm joking when I say that because Joe and I are the bookers, and it's a never, never-ending uh, task of trying to find people on the right days. But we keep trying. Hope everybody uh, have a good week. We'll see you next time on The Cusp Show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my host is Joe Favorito. And our production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.